You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to novelist and playwright Alice Jolly. Alice won the 2014 V.S. Pritchett Memorial Prize with one of her short stories, Ray the Rottweiler, and her memoir, Dead Babies in Seaside Towns, won the 2016 Penn Ackerley Prize. Her novel, Marianne's Sate Imbecile, was longlisted for the RSL and Dachi Prize and shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize. In 2021, Jolly was awarded an O. Henry Prize for her short story, From Far Around They Saw Us Burn, and the story collection of the same now is out now and available in your local bookshop. When we spoke, Alice and I discussed what might have happened if she hadn't accepted a job offer in Poland in her 20s and had stayed living and working in London instead. Along the way, we discussed the perspective you get from travel, European living, and the pros and cons of publishing. Alice also has a very scandalous home counties affair. Hi, Alice. Hi, Miriam. Thank you so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. Well, thank you for asking me to come along. Well, I'm really excited. and We've got quite an interesting path for you to explore today. But before we do, I just wondered, you've just published this really remarkable uh, collection of short stories from far around they saw us burn. And... Um, I I find it that we're both UK based and I find the short story in the UK to be such an interesting sort of proposition because it doesn't have quite the same following as it does in the States, right? I think sometimes short story collections can be tricky um, in a way that in the States they feel like a much more straightforward commercial proposition. And I'm really intrigued by what draws you to the short story. And I wonder if you could say a bit about that and a bit about the collection before we start journeying down your unlived path. Okay, yes, I will do. I suppose the first thing to say is that I was not initially drawn to short stories. When I was young, I just really couldn't see the point of a short story. I'm a lover of a long novel. And I used to just look at short stories and think, yeah, but that just stopped as soon as it was about to get going. I really wasn't that interested. But then uh, I won a prize, quite a big prize, for what must have actually been about the second or third short story I ever wrote. And invariably, that made me a little bit more interested. And then I got really interested because what I came to understand is that when you write a novel, the novel is actually a very constrained form. It feels like, oh, you've got all these many, many pages and you can write about so many different things. But actually, the truth of the matter is you tend to take some decisions about a novel quite early on 
And you're actually then tied into those decisions for a long time to come. You know, when you're sort of four years in and this is a entirely realistic novel, however much you might want to introduce an alien landing, it's just not going to go well, you know, because that's not the book you've set up. You kind of got to slightly stick with the book you set up to some degree. Whereas what I really love now about short stories and why I am excited by them is the experimentation and in a way the lack of commitment. You know, they are like, you started off and you think, yeah, I'll do something really different here. And then you've worked on it for a while. And then you just think, do you know what? I don't really think this works. And then you can just take some whole approach or you can just not go back to writing that story. Mm. So there's a real freedom in short stories. I think it's the huge sort of ground of experimentation. It's a huge sort of seed bed. And also, I think it's important to say as well, there are some things that are going to work in a short story that will never work in a novel. You know, Lance Stern said to us, what is strange must be short. And (laughs) you can, you know, you can write some really quite strange short story and people are going to go with that for eight pages. They're not going to go with it for 300 pages. And so realizing that and realizing that it sort of is a thing where anything goes is very exciting for a writer and I think yeah sometimes things I've done in short stories I've then felt bolder in novels because you feel yeah you know I can try that again it might work oh how cool it's like a testing ground and this collection I mean some of these stories are strange I mean you go strange in these in a really amazing way can you say a little bit about the about these particular stories well, actually, one of the my favourite stories in the collection is called Frog Warning. And a lot of the stories that are in the collection have been published in other places. That story has never been published. And I've sent it everywhere. And basically, the story is about the fact that one day, the word, word, disappears from the language and is replaced by the word frog. And so everyone tries to say word, but then they say frog. But then it gets an awful lot worse because a lot of other words start being replaced by animals. And I guess my question was, is when something hits us emotionally, is that the meaning of the word or is it the sound of the word? And I'm terribly interested in that because I know for poetry, so much is about sound. Mm. And, then, and I think sound we take sound in in a different place. We receive it in a different place. There's something very emotional about our response to sound, whereas words are much more sort of about meaning. And um, there's actually a kind of strange story about that story, which is whenever I'm getting to the end of writing something, I think I'm just going to read the whole thing out loud to myself and just make sure this works. And you know, I've got an 11 year old daughter. So finding the peace and quiet in order to just sit and listen to your own work is a bit difficult. And I woke really early one morning. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to get out of bed and I just go downstairs. I'm just going to read that story to myself. So I read that story. Um, and as I finished it, I suddenly heard this awful sobbing. Yeah. And my daughter sitting in the hall and she was really um, upset because the thing is, she couldn't understand the story because by the end of it, you can't understand it because all the words have turned into animals and it's gone completely crazy. And yet I was so—I mean, I was really sorry that she was crying. I went and gave her a big cuddle. But at the same time, I was thinking, God, I really got an answer to my question. <laughs> that something in the sound of that, that the emotions of it remain, even though the words, because that was my question, how far can words break down before we're just bored? Or are we able to sort of tune in at some level, even when the words have sort of slightly turned into nonsense? 
I think that's probably my favorite in the collection too. And for exactly that reason, because you do feel, you feel all the feelings, you feel all the feelings, but word is frog and something else is giraffe and something else is crocodile. And it's sort of, um, it's brilliantly executed. It's interesting, this idea of, of um, you know, the decisions that you make at the start of a novel being something that you're then tied into for, for you know, the rest of the the voyage. And I guess I'm going to sort of segue awkwardly into what we're doing here, which is essentially we're talking about the decisions that you make in life that end up sort of um, determining the course of your life. And for you, you made a decision when you were 27 that really, really impacted on on your whole trajectory, didn't it? So I think this is a nice moment to start to play around with your unlived life. Could you just say uh, where you were at the time, uh, what was going on for you, and then we can uh, go in the other direction? Well, I was living in London and it was 1992 and I had been out of university three years. And when I was leaving university, I was totally broke. Um, and sort of, I don't really know how this happened, but I'd applied to these kind of big level graduate training schemes. And like people I knew were kind of laughing at me, you know, like, God, why would she apply kind of thing? And then I landed one of these quite big jobs in a merchant bank, you know, and I don't, to this day, I don't know what was going on because, you know, I mean, I got a C in maths O level, you know, I, you know, I, I had been to Oxford University, but I really am not good with numbers. So I did this job and it was terrible. I mean, you know, I was so, so badly a kind of fish out of water. And I was sort of, you know, trying to look as though I knew what I was doing when I didn't. Um, and anyway, the only good bit of the job was that at that moment, um, the Berlin Wall came down and this countries of Central and Eastern Europe were suddenly opening up. And I was just thrilled by this. I can't really understand to this day why I suppose that I felt like it was a, that a historic debt was going to be repaid, that, you know, I felt that at Yalta, the countries of Central and Eastern Europe had been been betrayed. They had all become communist. It had been incredibly difficult for 50 years. Europe had lost sort of half of itself because these countries were just cut off. And then suddenly it was all going to come back together. And I thought, God, isn't this great? And then the job just went horribly wrong. This terrible man called me into his office and said to me, you know, if you leave this job, you will regret it for the rest of your life. Ooh. All this kind of stuff, it was, you know, it was horrible. Anyway, I did leave. And I have to say, I don't think I regretted it for 30 seconds. Um, but then pretty much as I was leaving, I had been doing this work in Poland um, with the World Bank. And I just got on with the guy who was running this work. And I just said to him, listen, I'm really sorry, but I'm not in that job anymore. You know, I just left. And he said, well, do you want a job? And I said, well, yeah, I'm not think I do he said well I need something do you want to come out here and at that time going to Poland was like a really weird thing to do because this was just post-communism and you know there wasn't enough food there were no proper um, communication networks you know these cities were kind of really not in a good state and this was a strange strange world that was suddenly opened up you know nobody had been there except on some in-tourist tour for for 50 years, really, these were like sort of lost countries. And so, it, you know, I should, I don't, looking back on it, I should have been really quite scared to go, but I, I, I don't know. It's just the recklessness of youth, I guess. 
I just wasn't really that scared. You know, I just did think, okay, yeah, well, that's better than what I'm doing here. So yeah, so I went. (laughs) And what else was going on here? What was your sort of personal life like? Was your family nearby? You're still quite, I mean, 27, still quite young. Was the rest of life okay? The job was obviously a disaster. Yeah, the rest of life was okay. But looking back on it now, what I see is that I had never kind of broken away from my family or my background. You know, I was brought up in rural Gloucestershire in a very affluent world, Uh, not an intellectual world, but, you know, people had money and big houses and you went to private school and you did pony club. And, you know, it was a very (laughs) conservative world. And it was a very weird world. I mean, it was exciting and great in lots of ways. And of course, when you're in it, you you don't question anything about it, it really, you know, because I never met anyone who was left wing in that world. It it didn't, you know, that wouldn't really have existed. And I didn't meet a lot of people who were very intellectual or very academic. And I did have, you know, like a huge amount of fun because it was a kind of country childhood and you could just clear off and do what you wanted all day, really. So, you know, I I certainly wasn't unhappy, but I was kind of aware of that I didn't fit in there at all. But then, you know, I went to Oxford and then I hung around with the people I had, same sort of people as I had known in my childhood. And again, felt like a bit of a fish out of water, but didn't really know why. And then, you know, getting in a job in an investment bank was absolutely what you were meant to do if you had had my kind of childhood. And if you'd been to Oxford University, this was the right thing for you to be doing. And yet, you know, more and more I was thinking, what what is this? I don't really, I don't really understand. You know, I was kind of just awash in this world. I didn't really know, know what was going on. And I was also just sticking with my university friends. And my university friends did have that kind of attitude to me of sort of sighing and shrug, shrugging, you know, oh, Alice, you know, kind of kind of thing. I think for all of us, at some point, we do need to get far away from where we come from because otherwise you're just continually stuck in the view that people had of you when you're 18 or when you were eight, you know, you sort of need to get away from that at some point, I think. It's an interesting one, this, because, I mean, you've described your time in Poland as a really formative and wonderful time. And you ended up staying there for what, is it 16 years? Is that what you said? No, I, I was there for actually a relatively short time, about okay. months. But because of having done that job, I then got a job in Brussels and then I stayed in Brussels for 16 years. So it was kind of... Right the beginning of a long period of not being in England. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to see what happens if you don't go to Poland and we're going to see um, where you end up as a result. So are you ready to sort of journey down that path and see how it goes? Yep. That's absolutely fine. All right. So I think we've agreed that you still quit your job because it's just too, it's just yuck. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you're going to quit your job, but then you're you're talking to this man from the World Bank and he offers you the job in Poland and for whatever reason you just say, "Do you know what? It's it's not the time for me." I kind of maybe I mean maybe it was just too scary or too daunting or um but you don't go. What do you think you would have done instead? You now are unemployed in London. I think it's difficult because I had kind of already done the maths on a lot of jobs. You know, mm. I had get out of that banking job for a while. And I just remember sitting at my desk in that job, surreptitiously going through the job adverts. And then, you know, there were these possibilities to work for an NGO or to, 
go into publishing, which I thought, yeah, I would like really like to go into publishing. And the salaries were half of what I was earning and I was broke. And so it sort of becomes like you sit at your desk desk and you sort of keep doing the maths again and again you think okay so I move out of where I live which was already very very grotty it was central but grotty and so I live somewhere right on the end of the tube line but all the ways that I did all these sums I still just thought I can't afford to take some really interesting sounding badly paid job and also that sounds a bit crazy because as I say I came from a world where people had money but my family had capital but they had no cash there was no there was no way my parents were paying for anything for me which is fine there was you know I didn't expect it so I do remember those days of just yeah trying to make these sums add up that made it possible to get out of this job so I fear that I would have finished up back in some similar kind of job, maybe slightly less pressured and maybe the people would have been slightly less dire. And I also think when I look back on myself at that time, I was a sitting duck for some ghastly Hooray Henry Sloan to get married to. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, partly I think when I say I was a wash in that world, I had no idea of myself as being quite an attractive young woman and also having won a scholarship to Oxford you know I didn't think of myself I thought of myself as like I I was just sort of socially embarrassing I didn't know what to say or do I I just was horribly self-conscious but I did have you know kind of long blonde hair and actually do you know I honestly think that part of the reason why I got ever got recruited to that job was because the men fancied me Mm. you know that in that area, it was fine for men just to recruit women to jobs just because they thought, four, we like the look of her. <laughs> and it was that world as well. It was a deeply sexist world. I'm not sure if I well, I don't know if it's any less sexist now. It's sort of certainly the perception. No, yeah, it, 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 it possibly isn't. You look back on it and you think, I have power. I mean, I really had power because I, I didn't know I had any power. So what's the point of power if you don't know you've got it? Mm. So I'm just sort of slightly stumbling around causing offence to people. And um, yeah, I think I would have gone into some other city job because I needed the money. And then I think one of these men, and hopefully one of the slightly nicer men, and you know, some of them were nice, would have thought, oh yes, you know, she's She's just the home the home county's kind of wife I'm looking for, you know, that oh God. I definitely look like the character of person that was up for that. And of and of course I think I would have I would have said yes, you know, because that was the other thing is my judgment about men was terrible. I mean, it was really awful. And also I because I had had a really, really bad relationship with my father, and I see now the way that I just was running around looking for some fatherly type person. And and also I was quite incredibly sort of passionate and over the top about things. And of course, all these people tired of me within two weeks because, you know, I wanted to talk about books and philosophy and all this stuff. And they're just thinking, no, no, no. You know, I just need a, someone to look after the kids in the house. You know, I really don't yeah. need this woman going on about philosophy. You sound like you were amazing. <laughs> I love 27 year old you. <laughs> yeah, I kind of really like myself now, but I, you know, at the time I didn't. I just thought, as I said, I just couldn't figure the whole thing out. I really couldn't. I mean, maybe it, maybe it would have been all right because I, you know, I would have had a, I'm sure I would have had a comfortable life, and it probably would have given me the freedom to write. But then also, you can't really write from that kind of position. You need a bit more life experience to write. You need to sort of, you know, 
you can't be a person that is like, you know, when someone's learning to swim and they're just going around the edge of the pool, holding onto the rail the whole time. Mm. Someone's got to kick off and set out into the water, you know, and I think Poland and Brussels made me do that. I think it's it's evident that that your life choice was the correct one for you. And I do want to hear more about Brussels too, because it sounds like it was an incredibly important time. But if let's say, let's just get some details laid down here. So you you go to work for another bank. Let's first let's is it is it as miserable as the other one? Or do you find something sort of workable about it? I think I could have found something workable about it. Um Although those kind of organizations are very kind of up or out, you know. Mm. So in a way at the time, I thought if I was wiser, why didn't I say to them, look, I can't do this big high profile, you know, high level thing. But, you know, like I could do some marketing thing. And really, I just want a nine to five job, but I am pretty good at what I the thing I can do. So, you know, isn't there some job we can find here? You know, I never thought of that was things I never thought of negotiating in that kind of way. I just thought either you do this or you don't. Um, so in this in this new iteration, do you think that's what you do? Do you try to since you feel I guess you feel like you're sort of you're you're a bit stuck there now. You've got to kind of make it work because you've you've looked at your other options. You've looked at publishing. You've looked at the interesting jobs. Do you? Yeah. Think- yeah, I, I I think so. And and also I think I would have done that because I if I'm totally honest, I wouldn't say that I'm a person that's really into money. I'm not. But having said that. I like quite beautiful things, you know, I like nice, I like my worlds to look quite nice. Mm. And so I don't think I would have had much talent for living in a garret endlessly. You know, if I could have found a slightly stylish garret, I might have been all right. But if it was just really a horrible place, I just think, no, I don't think that. So I, I kind of did want a certain level of comfort and and whatever. Um, and so, yeah, and I think... I think if I'd married one of those men, it would have given, it probably would have given me the freedom to write. So maybe, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad, but I can't help thinking that the whole thing would have fallen apart. Well, that's what we're going to figure out. We're going to figure out if it falls apart or not. So let's, let's identify, shall we? Okay. So we've, we've got your job, your job's sort of sorted. It's kind of fine. You've negotiated something that's a little bit more you know, up your street, something sort of in the marketing universe. Let's find the guy if that's what you think is going to happen. Where does he come from? Is he at work? Yeah, he would have been somebody at work, you know, and I had relationships with those people. And yeah, I think probably from their point of view, it was okay. But for mine, it wasn't. And it's hard to think what what would have been so wrong about it? Because after all, you know, those people, they, you know, they had very comfortable lives and they were kind of educated and polite and, you know, they were not terrible people, not by any manner of means. Um, Yeah, but but not terrible person isn't necessarily like the description you want of your life partner, right? You sort of... Yeah, I think the politics would have increasingly troubled me. When I was working in that bank, you know, People used to say sort of like incredible stuff, like they used to say things like, well, I must say this whole environmental crisis has come at a really bad time for investment banks. And that kind of comments of just like a sort of blindness to the world outside that that bubble, you know, and I think that I was always extremely conscious of the world outside that bubble. And 
when I met people who were like activists or something like that, I felt kind of jealous, but I also sort of felt embarrassed because they were doing something sensible and I wasn't. And if I hadn't left London, how I would ever have got into that world? Because I didn't know anybody that was involved in Labour Party politics. The group of people that I knew, that was not cool at all and their way of thinking and all the rest of it. And so, yeah. And so what I think is that it, it sort of probably, I don't know, it well, I think actually one of the things I know is I would pretty quickly have had an affair. <gasps> That's one thing, you know. Oh. It, I didn't have great staying power at that time, you know, <laughs> in terms of relationships. And, and as I say, I was kind of like, men were like a drug because I think of having this awful relationship with my father. So, you know, once the first kind of huge rush of passion wore off, I think I would pretty quickly have got bored and done something stupid, you know, which I, I don't like to say that about myself, but that, you know, that probably is the truth of it. So do we, are we saying you've, you found someone and we're just going to say he's sort of nondescript banker man, but pretty quickly you're, you're bored of him. You guys have gotten married, but pretty quickly you're bored and you, who's your affair with? Is it with another nondescript banker man or have you found somebody interesting? Maybe, maybe I found somebody more, yeah, a bit, a bit more, yeah, a bit more interesting. And maybe that is something that takes me into another world. I mean, it's kind of quite sad if you're kind of having to admit that the only way you're going to get something new in your life is a different man. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think we, we have your reality, which is that you got something different by going, going abroad and doing really exciting and daring things. So we'll just, we just have a, it's a different, it's a different way of exploring Mm. new worlds. Who do we think he is? This, this different, more interesting man. I think we should figure out, we don't need to figure out the banker man, but I think we should figure out this guy. I think he might be like a journalist um, or somebody in politics or somebody working in some sort of campaigning kind of world, or I guess somebody in the arts. Although having said that, I never think, I never necessarily think that writers being married to other writers is a particularly good idea. I mean, maybe I could have, married somebody in the publishing world and then I would have found out all sorts of things about books which I to this day I don't understand so (laughs) that could certainly have um have been an upside okay Uh, should we say it's that is that who he is he works in publishing yeah okay all right so you're having an affair with publishing guy um and Let's but I just want to check in with what your real life was like at that time. So you spent six months in Poland and then you went to Brussels. What were you doing in Brussels? I got a job working for the European Commission and it was a totally fantastic job. It was basically an aid administration job and it was for the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, which, as I just said, communism was ending. There was everybody was looking at how these countries could be helped and also looking to the longer term question of accession, how these countries are going to come into the European Union. And so I was spending a lot of time in the Baltic states. Um, I was traveling a lot. Um, And also I I felt passionate about it. You know, I, I loved the people that I met and in Poland, but also in the Baltic states. It was really exciting because whole new worlds were opening up you know people were laying aside a sort of burden that they'd carried for 50 years and suddenly 
wanting to rejoin Europe and wanting to be part of the mainstream. So although, you know, like when you were there, like in the Baltic states, they're cutting off the power the whole time and it's freezing cold and the food's terrible and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, there's this sort of energy and enthusiasm and excitement about what's possible. And I, yeah, I absolutely loved that job. Mm. What was your, what was the rest of your life there? I mean, was it all work or did you... Did you have friends? Did you have a um, series of bad relationships? It was also, um, yeah, my life at that time living in Brussels was fantastic. I mean, Brussels is a fantastic city to live in. It's massively, massively cheaper than London. Mm. And, so, you know, I moved out of a cupboard in London into a flat that I loved right in the centre of Brussels. And also London is terribly hard work because, like, you finish work, you know, too late and then you can't go home to get changed. So you go out to work in your work suit and then you just people just went to pubs and drank too much. So you just went. Yeah, it was. And then you just go home feeling drunk and wake up with a hangover and drag yourself into the office the next day. <laughs> it's just really hard life, you know. And then in Brussels, people don't work such long hours and you could walk home. So, you know, you literally finished at five, you went home, you took a shower, you put your nice clothes on, you walked out to a ni- nice bar that was three streets away. There weren't drunk people, you know, in London, <laughs> like, they were all drunk and they were kind of leering at you, looking down your front and stuff. In, you know, I'm not saying Brussels was a paradise, but there's not that culture. It's different. It's a cafe culture. You know, people have a glass of wine sitting down in a, mm. in a get drunk in the way that the English get drunk so it was totally lovely and also I just met people from all across Europe you know and also people just totally different to me and I think that was really the eye-opening thing Um, and also certainly the Brits in Brussels and actually a lot of people really are left-wing and certainly the Brits in Brussels are all left-wing because they all left when Thatcher came to power you know the kind of left in Europe decided uh, in Britain, the left in Britain decided that the future was in Europe and they kind of um, moved en masse at that time to Brussels. So there's lots of actually quite died in the wool socialists in Brussels. Um, And so I met lots of left wing people and it was, yeah. And it was just great. And I had one particular very good friend and, you know, that thing that they say when the pupil is ready, the teacher arrives Mm. and, he there were things I really didn't needed to understand in life and he was somebody from a totally different world to me who could tell me those things you know and like what kind of things what did he teach you um well this is quite personal but I had had a very bad relationship um with my dad and um yeah my dad was pursuing an alternative lifestyle shall we say okay this uh which or my whole childhood you were meant not to know that this was going on and that was why my childhood was quite odd because it was like a performance of this is a normal life when actually completely other stuff were going was going on and stuff that I honestly really didn't understand there was no context to put stuff in at that time and so this guy just was somebody who had so much more life experience than I did and understood so much more stuff and just told me things that yeah I I needed to know really. Hmm. In a in a so as in in a sort of replica father sort of way. Yeah, but much much nicer than that. <laughs> you know, um, because um, you, you know, 
I, I when I met him and I liked him so much and I said to all my girlfriends and this I said but I'm really worried you know because I think he might fancy me and I'm, I'm not really sure I fancy him I just really really like him and they're like what planet are you on he's gay it's like, yeah. all right all right yeah okay yeah right I don't know, no idea. And so, um, so it could, so it, it wasn't a kind of fatherly thing in a way. It was much more, I don't know, it was just like a very generous friendship, you know, really. And um, I'm still in touch with that guy now and he's still fantastic and I have such admiration for him. And he is somebody I would never have met in London because we moved in, we would have moved in totally, totally different circles. There was no kind of way really we would have met. What a beautiful relationship that sounds like. Um, I feel bad that I'm taking it away from you in your in your London life where you're having an affair with a publisher. But um at least you're having an affair with a publisher, so that's something. So okay, well let's let's bop back over to your unlived life and see what kind of progresses there. How long do you stay in this? I feel like we've entered your thirties now. Do you stay in this in this merchant job for a long time or this bank job for a long time? No, I think I don't because I'm guessing that I mar marry a man from that world and then so therefore he has money and I can go and do something that is, you know, um, more interesting to me. And also he probably doesn't even want his wife to be in that kind of world, you know. Mm. I know. So um, so probably I have many more kind of um, uh, opportunities to do different things. But then I kind of doubt that I like where I'm living because I didn't really ever want to live in London and I really didn't want to live in the kind of home counties, you know, where somebody's commuting into work because that wasn't where I was brought up. I was brought up in Gloucestershire and I love Gloucestershire, but nobody travels from Gloucestershire to London. So, you know, you might have fin finished up in sort of Surrey or somewhere like that. And, it, you know, obviously there's perfectly nice places there, but it, it wasn't what I wanted. And, yeah, so I don't know, but I mean, maybe... If if I'd got some a job doing some sort of charity or, or NGO work, then I would have become more politically aware. Um, Let's and, decide. What do you think you might have done? Um, I don't know. I might have done something to do with books or words, or I might have done something to do with a children's charity or an education charity or something like that. Um yeah, but I don't know. It's strange, isn't it? Because there is always that kind of kind of upper middle class kind of woman who does lots of charitable stuff. In a way, that's really good. But that doesn't translate into a change of politics. You know, that doesn't translate into actually let's not just, you know, raise money for this good cause. Let's just actually change the whole system from top to bottom, you know. I mean, I guess there are people that sort of make that leap, but in general, probably not. Mm. But I mean, presumably those people who don't make the leap have the have the conservative politics that, you know, and are surrounded by people with such with those conservative politics. But you inherently don't. I mean, you're you're not conservative and you wouldn't have been then. Well, let's see. Let's see what happens. So you're working for some sort of charity, educational something. Um, presumably you're not just content doing sort of fundraising and no, hosting I, parties. Yeah, no, I think, I think, um, I would be writing and that's in a way kind of where my unlived life and my actual life slightly coincide because actually in my actual life, um, my husband is a lawyer and I have spent a lot of time being, 
oh, you know, um, oh yes, the wife of Mr. So-and-so. She's very creative. <laughs> God, I hate the word creative. It's everywhere now, but it's sort of like when it's said in that way, it's so patronising, you know, it's like that, again, that upper class middle, upper middle class woman who's, you know, she's making her pots or doing her raffia work or whatever. Stabbling and, in watercolours. Yes, exactly. And then with the writing as well, you know, because, you know, you do finish up being this person that's sort of endlessly writing a book, but nobody's actually seen the book. And so they kind of think that the book is really probably just a bit of a kind of um, camouflage for sitting around doing not too much, you know. Um, that's hard. I, that's hard. How do you do? You, how do you deal with that? Because I would imagine that's very difficult because... I mean, it goes goes back to that fundamental stereotype that, or that idea, that nonsense idea that writing isn't work, um, which of course it fundamentally is, and it's serious work. Yeah, no, but the thing is, it's still um, it's still around now, you know, and it still gets on my nerves. And then you know, people in the family who says and say, and yes, and here's Alice's latest tome, you know, as in. For Christ's sake, she's gone on for 500 pages again. I mean, you just, and then, you know, there's always the man, isn't there, that he said, the the person who says to you, you know, um, that he's a brain surgeon, but, you know, when he retires, he's going to write a book and you just manage not to say, yeah, when I retire, I'm going to do some brain surgery. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Um, And also, you know. And, okay, so you're, you're, living now where have we moved you have we moved you outside of london i know your feelings about london but have we actually moved your home we've moved yeah. your job yeah i guess so because yes i yes so but it probably is a place that i don't particularly like is it the home counties are you in the home counties yeah okay you're in the home counties you're doing some sort of charity work but you're also finding you've also got time to write um your husband has no idea about your scandalous affair with are you still has the publisher thing ended now because he's based in london it's a bit hard with the commute and everything yeah yeah it, it, yeah it's probably ended but then maybe something else came along or you know it's probably not a good situation of some kind all right well we'll see we'll see let me know if you feel like anybody else emerges in that space um and and you're writing and when did you in real life when did you start writing um i started writing Kind of about about three years into my time in Brussels, I started, um, yeah, doing that quite seriously. I had this kind of idea that I should have published a novel by the time I was 30, and then 30 was coming along pretty quickly, and I was thinking, I haven't really done this. And um, I was doing that thing that people do, if you like, you rewrite the first page of your novel again and again and again, and it's never a masterpiece. It's never very good. It's never going to go anywhere. And then at some point, I just thought, wait a minute, this clearly is not the way to do this. Um, and I just thought, okay, I'm going to take three months. I'm just going to sit down and write this book. And so I just wrote it in three months. And that was a so much better approach because I then read it through and it was utterly terrible. And I couldn't believe that I had actually written something that bad, but equally I could then see, okay, right. So now I see what I have to do in order to change this. And I just started changing it and changing it and changing it. And so, um, it kind of went from there. And again, you know, there were ways in which that unlived lived life could have been better because the thing is I would then have had better contacts in the UK book world because the thing about Brussels, it was, it was great, but you know, when you kind of like contacted 
agents or publishers in London. You were somebody living abroad, which isn't so great from promoting your work. And so I wasn't going to book events in London and doing all those things. And I just don't really know whether that's an advantage or not an advantage. I actually think that not being in the book world is actually an advantage. I think you're going to write better like that. Um, but you're probably not going to publish as well. Because I think the thing is that once you're sort of in the book world, you're kind of then understanding what the book world wants. And I didn't understand what the book world wants. And that actually is a sort of strength in a way, Mm. because you just do your own thing. You're not always thinking, oh, you know, this publisher I talked to said they want this or that. I didn't have any of that knowledge. I was just doing my own thing. And so it was better, but it might not always have looked like that, I think. I think now it's really quite pernicious because you can see how big and exciting and dazzling and glittery it is because everybody's kind of telling you that on social media and everybody's got their books coming out. So it's kind of like you used to be at the gate and and you would like to go in, but you didn't really know what lay behind the gate. Now, unfortunately, you're at the gate and you can see the big glittering palace and it all looks really fantastic, but you're not going to get through the gate, which oh. is kind of worse in a way. <laughs> That's so interesting. Well, huh. Okay. All right. So, well, let's see. Let's see. So you're you're closer to London in your unlived life. You're writing. You're doing your charity work. You may or may not be having another affair. What happens with the books? Do you think you find a, a way to kind of first of all, are you writing the same thing? Presumably not. I think initially I am because okay. the very first book I wrote, which is still in a drawer and it's actually a good book, but um, it was very much about my childhood or all the world of my childhood. Um, so, yeah, I guess we all sort of start with that kind of autobiographical novel. So I think, um, yes, that first book would probably have been the same wherever I was. Um but you're the saying last- that book that book is still in a drawer. You haven't published that one. No, no. So um, do you publish it in this unlived life? Uh, no, because nobody did that then. That uh, was like absolute no-no. You know, you either got a publisher. I mean, self-publishing didn't really exist. And as much as it existed, it was called vanity publishing. And like it was not considered, you know, like something anybody would do. So it was that was the other thing. It was quite incredibly tough. You know, you needed to get an agent to, and get a publisher. And if you didn't, they the other options just weren't really there. But is there, because you were physically closer to London and because you had had this delightful um, dalliance with Publisher Man, do, do you have any inroads? Maybe I would have got that first book published. And, and to, do you know, to this day, I don't know the answer to that question because not so long ago, I, I, I said to a friend who really knows about this stuff, I said, do you know, am I getting this all wrong? Would I be better just to stop writing for a while and just spend my time going to literary parties in London, just go to every book launch, everyone, shake everybody by the hand? And interestingly, this friend of mine said, no, nah, that's not true. That's really not true because there are people who've been doing that for years and years and they can't get their work published. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's really right. But, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I still think that everything is about um someone you meet at a drinks party i do think that i wish it wasn't but i i think that's pretty much how it goes to be honest i think i mean i think a lot of things really are about who you meet and i i don't even 
it's a very frustrating thing. I think, it, you know, in some ways it's delightful because it means that you're, you know, you're making connections all the time and you're having ideas all the time and all things like that. But obviously if you don't have access to those people or those networks, then it's, it's really alienating, but let's, well, let's see, do you, what, what do you think in this unlived life? You've got this, you've got this book, you've got your autobiographical novel, your early thirties, you're commutable. There's been a guy who works in the industry. Do you find your way in? I think I would have done. I think I would, you know, I think I would have done because as I say, I was kind of very presentable, you know, at that time. And yeah, I, I think I would have done, but then in a way I think, and God, wouldn't the world be, be a better place if that had happened to me, you know, if a mainstream publisher pu published that first novel. But again, I'm not sure it's quite that simple because again, you then become tied into what publishers need and what they want. And actually, when I did publish my first novel, when I was living in, no, my, what was then my second novel, first published novel, living in Brussels, um, I immediately saw what that was. And I immediately saw how I was then a commodity and I needed to get books out and it needed to be what the publishers wanted. And I was sort of about to become a big cog in somebody else's machine. And as soon as I felt that, I just thought, nah, I, this is not for me. So I, I kind of did it because the, the deal was a two book deal so I got I did the second book it took me far too long and whatever but I think the publishing industry could already see oh no she's not that person that's going to get the book out every year and maybe the books are not quite what we want and you know so I was already out of sync with that whole world and so you know there is a kind of an unlived life in which I am the person the publishers want me to be that, you know, I'm getting those books out and, and all the rest of it. And, and therefore people know my name much more and I make money and I go to book festivals and all the rest of it. And there is a part of me that would have liked a bit more of that kind of stuff. But also I think once you're part of that world, it's quite difficult to reverse out of it. You know, people mm. I know, kind of done four of a certain kind of book and then the publishers don't want the fifth book and then they say actually you know I just really want to do a different kind of writing now it's it's hard you know to to change track within the literary world I would say mm. whereas your books have all been quite different haven't they so you've felt that you've had a little more freedom in that sense I mean fiction mm. memoir short stories yeah, I have. And I think I sort of saw the writing on the wall quite early because when my second published book came out, you know, there was a very kind of clear message that I needed to write something more commercial. I needed to be writing something that would be bigger and, you know, whatever. And even though I was quite young and I didn't have the, certainly didn't have the courage to actually say this, I was kind of thinking, you know, the time this takes and the money that I'm being paid simply do not stack up at all. And therefore, the idea that I'm going to write the book you want, <laughs> money taking loads of time. No, that just does not. You know, I felt like saying to these people, well, if you know exactly what book you want, then you commission that book and you pay me a living wage for it. Otherwise, no. You know, so although I didn't say any of that, I just sat there meekly and accepted it all. I um, I did spot that. I did think, hmm, no, there's something here that doesn't add up. 
Should we give you, should we just make a little bit more inroads and in, into, into what it might've looked like? Um, and we can see what it, we can just sort of see what it feels like. I just want to hang out in this world with you a little bit longer where you've, um, and I think ev evidently, um, the publishing path that you've taken has, has been the correct one for you and for your writing. Um, but so in this universe, you're, uh, you've gotten that, you've got, you have gotten that first book out. And do you think, do you think that's what happens next? Do you think that after that first book comes out, they say, we want another one of these, please? Is it the same sort of thing? Yeah, yes, I think so. But I think maybe the person that didn't go to Poland would have said yes to mm. that. Because there is, I guess I'm like all of us, I'm a sort of split personality, you know, in that there's some part of me that's quite radical and there's some part of me that is real head girl material, you know. <laughs> the part of me that is real head girl material you know, if the publisher said this is what they need, then this is what I'm going to do. You know, I could have been that person, but I don't know. I don't think it would have worked for very long because I was also looking at my own work. And after I published my second book, which I think is, you know, it, it is a good book, but I kind of looked at the two books I'd published and I sort of thought, so is this the future then? This is what I'm going to be doing is writing these kind of books and much as I love books and I love literature and I absolutely want to be a writer, I just thought, no, that's not enough. It's got to be something bigger than this because I was looking at the books and sort of knowing that they were kind of okay, but they weren't. I wanted, I don't know, as a writer, you feel like a gambler um, and I'm now a big gambler. And, you know, there are sort of times when you just chuck all your chips on red and just hope it's going to come up red, you know? And I think if you're, really writing well you have to kind of do that and yeah in a book like Marianne Saint for example that was putting all your chi chips on red and it was either went or it didn't and for a long time it really looked like it hadn't come up red at all um so I think probably I would always have wanted that risk but I think my probably my personal life would have become horribly complicated because I would probably have had kids by then and I'd probably have got divorced and so I'd probably be trying to looking after kids on my own and and I also I, I I think I think the big thing about going abroad is that you somehow step back from your own country but you also step back from yourself and so you kind of see a bit more clearly I think if I hadn't done that I might have been someone who was quite stuck in a system that they maybe didn't like but they were just going to keep doing it because it is interesting what makes any of us step back from the systems that we're in and just think, nah, none of this is really right. And for some reason, this is really making me think of COVID, you know, where nationally a lot of people suddenly stepped back from what they were doing and thought, wait a minute, why are any of us doing any of these things? Yeah. But it is interesting. I guess time is a big factor. If you suddenly have more time than you did and yeah, maybe time is the main thing. Maybe just downtime or a bit of quiet or something. At that moment, you think, oof, yeah, I shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't be doing any of these things I'm doing. So, yeah, I don't know. I find it very interesting, yeah, that question of how people wake up to the fact that somehow they have taken a wrong path. 
It feels like the most common narrative is exactly that, that just one day they kind of wake up and they realize, you know, um, as opposed to what I think was probably more realistic, which is that you have a sort of slow, steady sense of something not being quite right or or not even or or simply, you know, you're sort of, as you say, you're sort of within a system and you, it's it's so difficult even to see that that system isn't working for you. And also, I suppose it depends if you can see another system or not. You have to be able to see something else. And that, of course, is part of the reason why books and the imagination are so important. Yes. The books sometimes say to us, there are other worlds. You could do this differently. You could be in a different place, you know. But I think often people can live for a long time in situations where they don't see any other thing. And so they wouldn't take that other thing or they wouldn't try to get there or they wouldn't try to change things. And also I think there's a big question about safety there, isn't there? At the end of the day, you know, as human beings, we prioritise our safety inevitably, don't we? We want to be, we want to have a house, we want to have clothes and love and, you know, we want to we want to have all those things. And for anybody to do something that really kind of, pushes them into a situation which is unsafe you know maybe they're going to have no income maybe all their friends hate them maybe nobody speaks to them anymore or they're in a dangerous place or all of those things you kind of have to be going against your instinct basically to do those things don't you Mm, absolutely which makes it all the more amazing that people do do them right I mean people do they pack up their stuff they leave their their homes they leave their families they leave their whatever they're comfortable in. And you obviously did it. I mean, what it is interesting to think about. Why do you think you were able to do it? I mean, I think age is a huge factor. You mm. know, young young people do that because what, you know, what was really going to go so badly wrong? I was just going to get a flight back if it all went wrong. Yeah, you don't know at that point, do you? You don't know that you're sort of signing yourself up for. But I think it's also the great thing about human beings, you know, that fundamentally we are pretty optimistic because even when things have gone wrong, a lot of times people keep thinking, yeah, I can start again. I can do this better. I can find another way. And that's absolutely fantastic because actually what is dire is when people don't think that is when they literally do think this is what I've got. and This is it. And there's really nothing I can do about it. And of course, a lot of people are in situations which slightly make that true. Yeah. But even to stop thinking you know, even if you're in a dire situation and you can't get out of it in the next moment or the next year or the next couple of years, you know, if you really think you can never get out of that, then at that point, why would you go on, really, if you, you know, and so, yeah, our capacity to keep thinking that we're going to do something bigger and better and, you know, whatever is, I think it's probably essential for staying alive, you know, I mean, I think as somebody who is now less than young, you really look at the people a bit older than you and you think, how do people age successfully? And um, my mum, who's the most wonderful old lady, is 84. And, you know, she just keeps getting up and doing things. She, and, and in a way, that's it's quite simple. That's what, how she's keeping going. She just keeps getting up and, and also being interested in other people and having new projects. She has new projects, age 84. And you think, yeah, this is, I guess, how you... How, how you don't become an old person sat in a chair watching television all day. I think that's right. I think doing new things at that stage is really crucial. And it's interesting to think about it framed the way you have in terms of just optimism, that the idea that you can keep doing something different at some point. And I guess I'm wondering 
before we wrap up, if we go back to you in the home counties and you've gotten divorced and you've got some kids, but you are writing. Um, and I'm just wondering if you feel optimism from where you sit there, if you feel like there's a next step in that space, where would you go next? I think I, I think I would feel optimistic because my situation wouldn't be that bad, assuming that I had, a, you know, a, a bit of money. I mean, it, you know, that obviously is a huge, huge factor. Um, but yeah, I think in a way, yes, I would feel quite excited because I would still be thinking there's lots of things I can do with my my life. Um, and And also actually, you know, I don't know whether you ever have those moments when in your imagination, you have some terrible accident and you're paralyzed or, you know, you get incredibly sick and you can barely get out of bed. And whenever I go through those really dire scenarios in my mind, the thing I'm really thinking is, yeah, but would I still be able to write? Would I, would I still be able to do that? And I, I think for me, as long as I have that, a lot of other stuff could be wrong. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I, I would say is, you know, that I think people sometimes think, oh, you know, good writing, these these amazing writers of the past, they had these very chaotic lives and they were drinking and it was all so difficult, but they were still knocking out a masterpiece. I'm not really sure about that. I, th- I, I, I There's some quote somewhere about, you know, having peace and stability in your actual life so that you can be wild and free in your imaginative life. And I think I'm more on that side of the argument. So definitely, you know, the money thing would be a big factor if you had an, you know enough money to have a sort of reasonably comfortable life and you can keep writing then goodness me you've got nothing to complain about really mm. well that feels like a, a kind of a good spot to end is there anything else that you want to explore in your unlived life before we I don't know that there is except of course I'm always having massive unlived lives all the time in the in the books I write you know I I mean I'm not in the books but I'm exploring whole worlds and visiting whole worlds and yeah and also this thing about um believing that you can keep reinventing yourself it's really weird because overall I think I'm a bit of a glass half empty kind of person I can always see the downside in anything but it's quite strange because as a writer I am recklessly optimistic. <laughs> really very little reason to be. I honestly do. And yet the next book is always the big book. This is the one, you know. And, I, you know, I kind of have no doubt that it's all going to work out for me in the end. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, yeah. And I guess that that's, you know, that's another unlived life is kind of like, yes, the belief that the future is all going to be great. Although, when I say that, I think I'm not that kind of person. I'm really not. I mean, you know, I see enough really bad stuff around me to know that it really doesn't have to be great. But somehow in terms of the writing, I always think it will be. Well, and as you say, how could you possibly go on if you didn't? What would you be what would you sort of be aiming for if you if you didn't feel that way? Yeah, no, absolutely that. Absolutely. Because on the face of it, there is no reason to continue, really, you know, Um any time you're like, what? And, and certainly, you know, when Marianne Sait was first public, published and nobody wanted to know anything about that book, I did think, honestly, you know, you're in your 50s, you can't even get a review in the National Press for what you're writing. What are you doing? But even then, you know, when I thought, well, okay, then I'm, I'll just, you know, when I just stop doing this, I knew I wasn't going to stop. Mm. I just had a vision of myself and I was writing my books and I was, 
you know, publishing them myself. And we have a lovely farmer's market in our local town. And I thought, I'll just sit in the farmer's market and just sell my books to a few friends who are walking past. You know, I'll just, so yeah, I wasn't actually really contemplating giving up even then, you know. Amazing. Um, if if there is the final question is just if there is anything that you can pull from your unlived life into your real life, because I, I think I think the way I feel about unlived lives and I wonder actually if it's similar with your writing, the way I feel about unlived lives is that they don't I mean, as as like evidence, like the way your life panned out was the way it should have panned out. But I always feel like there's some value in sort of opening the portal into sort of another universe in the same way that you do when you when you write a short story or you write a novel you sort of you're sort of taking a peek into another world in a way that it might have been and I always think that you could in, if you want to you could sort of pull something over from that unlived life into your actual life um you know some, something abstract or something tangible um usually something abstract so is there anything that you would want to bring over from this unlived life we've just created for you yeah um I would and in a way I kind of now at least externally, it looks like I slightly had the life that I would would have had if I hadn't made those decisions. And so um, this sounds kind of really, you know, like I'm an incredibly optimistic person, which as I've just said, I'm not. But I do sort of have a feeling that kind of somehow we are going to finish up being the person we were meant to do be and doing some of the things we wanted to do. Um, and so somehow some other route would have brought me, I think, to kind of actually more or less the same um, path. And there are undoubtedly um, things that are good about that unlived life. Um, because, of course, I did move back to England in 2014. And I and it was totally strange because it was like arriving back in the life of my childhood. And I did think, oh, my God, remind me, what am I doing back here? <laughs> But then, of course, it's been really nice in lots of ways. You know, it's, you know, I'm out in the country as in Gloucestershire, as I was in my childhood. I'm actually giving my children a lovely country childhood, which I had. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't look at that other person and think, oh, my God, you know, everything about that life would have been a disaster. Not at all. As I say, I sort of think you kind of finish up where you're meant to be, but maybe the route is not obvious and maybe there were lots of different routes you could have taken and you'd have still finished up where you are more or less in some way mm. all roads lead to rome in the end <laughs> um, well that's amazing thank you so much for chatting with me oh well, thank you so much it's been really it's been really interesting thank you Alice's actual life has been so fascinating and has taken so many turns, it was definitely difficult to take her away from it. I felt a bit guilty about it, really. But what I loved was how her radical sensibilities, combined with a healthy dose of, as she put it, head girl mentality, came right along with her despite her not traveling abroad. The exterior of her life might have looked different, but ultimately she was still a writer, still political, still eager to make change. Ultimately, despite not spending 20 years abroad, despite having a more, quote, conventional existence and even a more conventional publishing career, in the end, all roads led her right back to herself. If 
you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.